All right, let's do this. Hello, Louis Theroux here, and welcome to another episode of my Spotify podcast called, yes, The Louis Theroux Podcast. I, I never get tired of that joke. I do get a bit tired of it. And today we are hosting the wonderful, talented actor, writer, and all-round comedy legend, Sanjeev Bhaskar. And I should also add to that friend, well, sort of friend, friendly presence in my life, in as much as I'd been aware of him when I was working in the BBC in the 90s um, and early 2000s. He was coming to fame around the same time in his trailblazing sketch show, first of all, goodness gracious me, which had four talented sort of main actors, all of them of Asian heritage, and which was themed along sort of the comedy of, of the British Asian experience. And then after that, with his brilliant groundbreaking talk show, which was called The Kumars at Number 42, in which the concept was that he was hosting the chat show from his home with his parents and his granny all living in the house with him as these bona fide real stars came in, Phil Collins and Ronnie Corbett and many others, and were interviewed. So it was a kind of improv, Larry Sanders-esque what are the, the the other reference, I suppose, would be The King of Comedy. If you've ever seen the Martin Scorsese film with Robert De Niro in which he's called Rupert Pupkin, I think, hosts a chat show from the basement of his mum's house. So what I'm saying is he is and was a huge star and someone who kind of reinvented the genre. How big was the Kumars at number 42? Well, try this. When the Queen was asked what her favourite television show was, apparently she said The Kumars. And it was just one of those things that happened in the culture where for a while everyone seemed to be tuning in and enjoying it. And the catchphrase, kiss my chuddies, was on everyone's lips. Chuddies, of course, being a word for underpants. And which entered the OED as a word. There's not many people who can claim to have actually got a word into the dictionary. But Sanjeev and his colleagues on the show managed to do that. And apparently the entry name-checked Sanjeev. Anyway, uh, we recorded this conversation in person at the Spotify studio in December of last year. It was a great chat. We sat down for a good, I don't know, more than two hours, uh, maybe even three, and we've boiled it down to a very tight, what is it, a little over an hour. There are some strong language, some adult themes, and also some of the usual... Uh, culture wars talking points, which, I don't know, may cause some sort of disquiet and perhaps need flagging up. I, I suppose it's been brought to my attention by myself that in a lot of these shows, for some reason, I ask about Woody Allen. A lot, a lot of the guests have worked with Woody Allen or Harvey Weinstein or their experience of either blacking up or browning up or working with people who have browned up or blacked up or their opinions on that. So it's become a kind of, um, and that's, you know, just to name a few, there's a kind of cancelled, uh, or what is it, culture wars talking point bingo, or a cancelled man bingo? Anyway, some kind of bingo. If you have a scorecard and you'd like to play at home, feel free to make one up and tick the boxes for this one. Well, Woody is in. Woody, can I call him that? Woody Allen. Uh, Harvey Weinstein is coming up. I'm kind of giving it away by Lawrence Fox. He's not actually, that's quite a rare Pokemon. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
That's a, I'm, I'm mixing up my game metaphors. That's a very rare Pokemon. That's not funny, man. What is that funny? It is quite funny. All of that and much, much more coming up. Ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, a man who needs no introduction, but, Sanjeev Bhaskar. But you did it anyway. That's a new thing I'm trying out. I'm on it. You know, I just saw that and I thought, it feels like a chat show, kind of. Well, it is kind of. Isn't it kind of? It is kind of, yeah. Do you have a podcast? I don't have a podcast. You're the last yeah. person in Britain to not have their own podcast. That was my aim. <laughs> my aim is to be the last person in Britain. In the Western world, to not have his own podcast. How are you doing? How's everything going? You well? I'm okay. Yeah. It's been a challenging month. Has it? Oh, yeah. Because you lost your... My dad, yeah. Dad. I'm sorry, my condolences. Thank you. Thank you very much. It was kind of... Um, and then we had to move out into a rental property. Um, was he living with you? No, he wasn't. He was kind of uh, living in West London, so he was in Hounslow. But the day after the funeral, we had to move out of our house into this rental property because yeah. we found a leak under the floor. Oh, so it wasn't That's... related? To the leak. Well, to the leak it would have been, but not no. to the bereavement. No, 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 it wasn't. No, no. no. I mean, I'm sure there are. I mean, if we dig deep enough, I'm sure we'll find a culture. Where... It's, all, it's all a metaphor. <laughs> just have to... The plumbing. Yeah, exactly. So we had, yeah, we had two days. The, the two days after the funeral, we had to kind of shift all of our stuff. So... And at the end of that week, it was our son's 18th birthday. So it was like all life had been compressed wow. into a week, you know, wow. which was joyous in its own way. But, you know, you kind of you deal with whatever's put before you, you know. I'm quite good at not dealing with stuff that's not put before me. So that whole idea of the what-ifs. Yeah. And if that happened, then what would, and then the plan, and then what happens to the plan? You're good at ignoring the It kind of, yeah, because... It's such a kind of treacherous road to go down. Mm. Because where do you start? I'd like to talk about your dad, but should we mm. should we come back to that? Because I feel yeah, like it could get quite heavy. And also I want to um I mean, I feel like our lives have been our careers anyway, in some ways have been on parallel tracks a little well, bit. Yeah, do you know what it's interesting you say that? Because I I mean I'm a huge fan. Thank and you. because I think I became aware of your stuff just as I was starting yeah. my career. And I think it's a weird thing when when you do something, especially with telly, you just become more aware of telly mm. and what else is on and who else is on. And so that period was it the the one called More Stuff? Maybe maybe that's that was ninety kind of... yeah ninety four ninety five, and then um, ninety eight was when Weird Weekends came. So ninety eight was when Goodness Gracious Me, which was the sketch show that I did, that went on telly in ninety eight. So yeah, started watching you then. So I feel like our lives, our careers were on parallel tracks. I was sort of coming onto TV, mid-90s, late-90s. You were, um, as you said, doing Goodness Gracious Me and then the Kumars at number 42, mm. which followed up, reaching, I would say, even even bigger audiences. Would you? Yeah, it, it did, yeah. I mean, bigger audiences in Britain, but also it was the first thing I'd done which went international. So it was big in Australia, New Zealand, and South Africa, across Asia, it was shown in America on BBC America at that time. But some of the best reviews we got were from sort of places or certainly publications I'd never heard of. I mean, it was I'm, I'm probably making this up now, but 
the San Antonio Sentinel or something like yeah. that, where they had no idea of who some of the guests were, the British guests, uh, but they got the format. So, yeah, that was the first thing I did, which was kind of, I think, uh, was quite big, I suppose. But goodness gracious me, was was big too, but maybe not as international. Is that what you mean? It wasn't as international. No, it probably had a bigger cultural impact here yeah. uh, than Kamaz did. But, um, I mean, other than bootleg videos, mm. which was big business in India, certainly. So right. umpteen people in India watched a kind of 25th generation copy, slightly worn out and sound going and a crackly picture. And, I mean, I would like to sort of talk about Goodness gracious me and the Kumars, but I'm also aware that's 15, 20 years ago. Are you all right diving back? Because it yeah. feels like, in a way, correct me if I'm wrong, the purest expression of maybe your sensibility and certainly the part of your work that was um, did most to sort of challenge the landscape or at mm -hmm. least change the landscape of British TV. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes sense, yeah. Um, it was quite a traditional sketch show, actually, the difference being that it was written and performed and produced by British Asians. And that hadn't happened before. And so... It was you and your talented, brilliant wife, Mira Sayal, although she wasn't then your wife. She wasn't then my wife, no. She is now. She is. Nina Wadia mm. and... Kulvinder Gear. Who's very good. Yeah, yeah. I mean, one of the best physical comedians I've ever seen, actually. So, traditional sketch show, but with an Asian twist. Yeah, and it was kind of... Uh, it was a viewpoint that hadn't been seen on TV before. And so it, we were able to do a mixture of some satirical stuff, some commentary on yeah. society, but also just silly. Uh, and I think we we said our sensibilities were comedy first and political, if at all, second. Yeah. And so people can understand our politics through small p politics, through uh, the sketches, rather than you know, the sketches should kind of like express your politics. And so that allowed us to kind of do silly stuff. We did songs. We did kind of, uh, as I said, you know, in many ways, a very traditional sketch show, but through a prism, I, th I think that hadn't really been explored before. Perhaps most famously, like your version of the Dead Parrot sketch, mm. if you like, is probably the I want to go for an English That's it. sketch. Yeah. Is it, is it, am I right? That was in the first episode of the first series? It was, yeah. Yeah. So you scored a home run right out the gate, if I can mix my metaphors. You absolutely can. Um, yeah, that was that was our kind of dead parrot sketch. I mean, it was... Uh, who wrote it? Let's shout out the writer. So it was, it was two writers who, who were the main two writers on the show. Sharat Sardana, who is no longer with us, unfortunately, and Richard Pinto, his writing partner. And the very front of the sketch, Vitelli I wrote, which was like a mock cinema ad mm -hmm. that you used to see here certainly when you, were, when you were growing up, it was like for a restaurant around the corner or something. It was very grainy. Very, that's right, yeah. Suit, almost shot on Super 8. That's right. Bad music. Yeah. It was slightly I out of sync. It. Out of sync, yeah. yeah. That was giving me flashbacks to um, the cinema in Putney in the, in the sort of early 80s. And yeah, that it was this is a, a cinema. Why does the ad look worse than things I see on TV? <laughs> yeah, it was kind of, But also it was that wonderful mixture of, you'd get, you know, at that time, the very famous Pearl and Dean jingle <clears throat> i'd sing the jingle but we'd probably have trouble clearing it yeah but that went ba, 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 i think you can get away with that yeah and then you'd have an advert for sort of local 
sort of shops. Yeah, like a literally like a, a newsagent, yeah. not a newsagent, but it'd be a restaurant or... I mean, it would be, I mean, there would be things like, you know, Himalaya, Indian restaurant, 20 yards from the cinema. You know, yeah. it was kind of like as if yeah. I've just been to see Indiana Jones. Yeah. And what I really want to do now is buy a carpet exactly. and go for a meal, you know, <laughs> 20 yards from the cinema. But your, your, so in your skit, they advertised Mountbatten's, I believe it's It called. was the Mountbatten English restaurant in downtown Mumbai where, you know, the chef will delight you with his wonderful English cuisine, which includes, uh, you know, potatoes and also peas. <laughs> <laughs> that was about it. Yeah. And so the skit was a reversal gag on, at that time in the 90s, uh, people would, in Britain certainly, would. it became a shorthand, which is to go for an Indian yeah. on a Friday night. So these were five people from Mumbai going out for an English yeah. on a Friday night in Mumbai. And so where is Argued here? up. Basically behaving a bit like pissed up, none too polite, none too decorous kind of English or British people who are think it's funny to make fun of the accent of the waiter. Yeah. And we did a few like that. It became a sort of calling card. So we had Delhi backpackers uh, coming to England to find themselves, <laughs> to go on the kind of like spiritual trail. Where did they go? Uh, they went to London's famous... Uh, convent garden uh my favorite thing at the time there was the evening paper in london the evening standard it's now a, a sort of freebie that you pick up on the um as you're going around town but at that time you paid for it it wasn't much but there was a great bit where mira and nina are haggling with this guy over a, an evening standard he goes it's it's 15p and they go yeah don't give us tourist prices <laughs> um the ones that tickled me in particular, um, one I watched last night in which it's a Muslim couple whose son converts to Judaism. Oh, yeah, yeah. And then you play the son who walks in, sort of doing a Woody Allen impersonation, and quite a good one, may oh, I well, say. Well, thank you very much. And actually, there is a sort of political, or at least a kind of cultural commentary going on to do with uh, Jewish and Muslim relations being strained, and then actually the deep kind of things that they have in common. Yeah, that seemed to be what was going on. That in was, the text. yeah, that was one of the ones I wrote. But yeah, was that's it? exactly. Can it you was. still do a Woody Allen? You know, I, I can try. It's just you know, it's trying. It's, it's, it's sometimes the consonants. Are, I, you, I, I, you know that it's where it starts. Starts. It starts. And it's like, you know, there's a bit too much on the end of the word. Yeah, yeah. I, I wish I could. I can't believe you would do that. There you Here go. We go. When I'm called upon to do an impression, uh, I go into fight or flight response. When you say called upon, I mean, you called yourself. I did. Right? Yeah. Just want to make that clear that I hadn't suddenly I employed semaphore or something no. that people can't see. No, I, it was me directing myself saying, turn up, Louis, this is your moment. And then there's a series um, not a series. There's a there's a running series of sketches to do with um, a family or a couple called the Coopers. Yeah, it's the it's the it's two couples, the Coopers and the Robinsons, and uh, they're actually uh, called the Kapoors and the Rabindranaths, <laughs> but they refuse to accept they're anything but traditionally British. Yeah. So interestingly, here, when various members of the uh, British Asian community have reached high offices of government. <laughs> whether it be Foreign Secretary, Home Secretary, or Prime Minister, somebody will send me um, either a clip or a photo of the Coopers and the Robinsons 
because they were they were trying to be more British than the British. Mm. So they hated immigrants. They hated kind of like, you know, if anyone referred to them as being immigrants, they would be, you know, absolutely. They, they called themselves Chigwellian, Chigwell's place in Essex. So it was that refusal to kind of accept who they really were. And so, you know, whether it's been Rishi Sunak or Swella Braverman or Priti Patel, someone will always send me a reference point to those characters and kind of go, ah, they're just them. It's your fault. Yeah, it's interesting because obviously in the context of, for the global audience, such as we have, you know, we in the UK have a political class in which for both good and ill, we have um, many of the highest offices of state occupied by people of Asian heritage, including our prime minister, mm. Rishi Sunak, also Suella Bravman, who recently resigned, Sajid Javid, Nadim Zahawi, which is a strange, it's a strange situation, isn't it? Strange that in many cases, the most right wing, the most unapologetic proponents of what one might characterize as exclusionary yeah. policies. Um, I, I mean, I have, go to bat for them in some I, cases. I mean, I have a, I have a kind of you know cod theory about that. Go on. Which is that a lot of British Asians voted for Brexit, mm-hmm. voted for leaving the European Union, and I asked my mum why that was, why so many of her friends had voted Brexit. And her first answer was, they said there are too many Albanians. And I said, that's way too specific. I know that your friends couldn't tell an Albanian from someone from Greece or you know any part of, other part of Europe, to be quite mm. honest. But I think it was that when they arrived, that generation arrived, they suffered the exclusions and they suffered the kind of, uh, I mean, you know, racism is, is probably too strong a word to throw in this early, but certainly prejudices they mm-hmm. were they were subject to. And I think this was their first chance to prove how British they were mm. by going, yeah, Britain, Britain alone. Yeah, we don't need Europe. And look at all these kind of, you know, East Europeans who are coming here. Mm. Well, what about them? So all the things that they were subject to, I think, unthinkingly, they kind of played that out. So I think in some respects, I'm not surprised that you have people who are to the right of the political spectrum who happen to be British Asian because their parents probably suffered you know, a level of prejudice that they didn't. And subconsciously, you're aware of that. And so if you then kind of want to prove your patriotism in some way, that becomes a very simple sort of banner to to fall behind. Suella Braverman at times seems almost comically reactionary. Well, that's why the, the, the Cooper's characters are thrown at me, yeah. particularly, because it is, it's almost beyond satire. I mean, you know what? It is so boring for you, but we should probably t- do your. I think it, people would probably find it interesting how you came to be on TV because you came to it. People always say quite late, although you were in your what mid early thirties, mid thirties, mid thirties. That yeah. is quite late. To start, I suppose it is. You know, yeah, I wanted to be an actor or a writer or something creative since uh, I was four or five years old, and. This feels like an apocryphal story, but it actually happened. But when I was about five, uh, an uncle came to our house and said, well, young man, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I said, actor. And my dad said, it's pronounced doctor. And a, I've heard you say that before. And it's, I always assumed it was a joke. No, it wasn't. It was, kind of, <laughs> it was, it was true. Um, and it took me then 30 years to get started on it. And it was, but, you know, that 30 years was spent kind of... Uh, mostly feeling like a failure because I tried to do what I thought would please my parents. And I was very, very aware 
of how hard it had been and was for them when I was growing up. So I remember being five, six years old and thinking, I'm recognizing the slights that are made at their expense mm. more than they are. You know, subtle little put downs here and there. And I like mean, when you're out at the, sh the shops, like a tone of voice or a vibe? Yeah. So, you know, um, a patronizing tone. I remember somebody who came to our house once. My dad was given a painting that someone at his, uh, the factory that he worked in had given him. And they, the Nestle factory. The Nestle factory in, in West London. And, um, so he'd been given this painting and they'd never had a painting before. They didn't know anything about art that wasn't a particular interest of theirs, but they were given this painting, an oil painting, in a frame. And I was 15 at that time. And someone came to the house and they very they were showing everybody who came to the house. They said, look, we got a painting. We've got that. That's, it's a real painting. And this person said, uh, yeah, it looks like a cheap constable there, doesn't it? And I thought, you know that my parents don't know who constable is. And I was absolutely incensed. Really? And I was 15. And I said to this person, I said, which constable painting has a stream in it then? And I didn't know, but I was pretty damn sure they didn't either. And then they kind of backtracked. Really? And I said, oh, you probably don't know. I think it's the Hay Wayne, isn't it? Yeah. Is it? Yeah, it is, I think. <laughs> <laughs> but that's not the point of the story. No. Uh, no, I then looked it up. But um, but it was, you know, and that's the subtle end of the uh, the put-downs. Um, but also I remember what we, we lived above a laundrette. Which uh, your dad owned? Which my dad owned, yeah. So he worked in the factory and then ran this laundrette as well. He was anyway an exemplar of a very classical kind of um, Asian entrepreneurship, like working in a factory and buying his own laundrette. I mean, well, this is I that think, on its own is kind of <clears throat> it's 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 very impressive. It wasn't unusual, no. uh, but also I think that people always forget this about an immigrant work ethic, which is that people don't move to have tea breaks and holidays; mm. they move to work. That is their primary purpose. For if they're economic migrants, they're there to kind of earn money send it back to their families to support their families. And I remember this as, you know, being said to me as a criticism, which was kind of like, well, they just, you know, they're just sending the money back. And you go, yeah, no, they're paying their taxes and they're spending money in shops and restaurants and mm. cinemas and all the rest of it. And whatever money they have left, it's kind of up to them what they do with it. You know, whether they go and buy a Rolls Royce or whether they kind of um, go and gamble or whether they send it back to support their family. Mm. And so, so many people did that. And so for many of them, it wasn't, it was a temporary move. Then they had children and then children went to school and established kind of friends. And so they ended up staying. But I've always found it really interesting. And my dad came to Britain in 1956. Now this is 10 years, less than 10 years since British rule in India. And I've always found that fascinating, that so many people, I mean, in, in the modern parlance, it would be, you know, to choose to go and live in the land of the, mm. the oppressor. And I think that's fascinating, that they had grown up with a view of Britain, which was given to me by my, my dad particularly, which was that, you know, the British are. Um, actually, an interesting thing, I did a documentary series when I went to India, and I didn't on camera because I just forgot. And uh, But I did put it in a book that I wrote afterwards. I asked people what, this would have been around, gosh, 2007-ish. I said, randomly, if I say the word Britain to you, 
what words come to in mind. India, in India, you're asking people, yeah. right. All of them said more or less the same thing, which was they kind of said, good manners, mm. very polite people, um, law and order, mm -hmm. very important, creativity, literature, Shakespeare, mm -hmm. music, Beatles. And that was their view of Britain. And I remember thinking and writing in the book, it seems such a shame that we don't aspire to the way that we're seen. Mm -hmm. And uh, my dad came with exactly those uh, that notion of those credentials as being British and sort of like encouraged us to follow those, you know, be polite, work hard and embrace the, the cultural aspects, which was the kind of the, you know, music and literature, particularly Dickens and, you know, all that sort of stuff is what they would quote at me. And so Your parents would. Yeah. Really? Yeah. In terms of fitting in, you know, as, as children of migrants, the one thing that your parents want for your kids is that you can fit in in a way and be a part of society that they couldn't. And so for them, whether it was language, whether it was accent, whether it was cultural reference points, you know, they couldn't, they never felt like they completely fitted in. Mm. Whereas me being born in uh, London, I had the same cultural reference points as anybody else, except I had a, had a bunch more via my parents. But in terms of pop music and films and TV and, you know, all those cultural touch points, I had exactly the same as everyone else. So, you know, that, notion of fitting in was more embedded in me than it was for them. They always felt like they were outsiders. It's worth reflecting that your dad came to to England having already been displaced once. In one yeah. sense, like this was part of a longer journey he was making from his ancestral homeland mm. in the Punjab. Is that right? Yeah. So he was in, in sort of British India. He was in what then became Pakistan. So India and Pakistan were created in 1947 when the British pulled out. And it is still to date the biggest exodus in history. It was kind of 15 million people, I think. Were displaced, were displaced. uprooted, moved. A million people lost their lives, I believe. Uh, and that was just on the western border. Really? So there's a monument on the border between Pakistan and India to the one million people that died. Um, so it was partition, mm. which I think it was to do with like obviously having said, well, we better we've got Hindus and we've got Muslims and we better basically have them on different sides of the of the border, right? Was that the, the start? Yeah, point? well, it was that became the reasoning mm -hmm. for it. So there were um, the British governments of the time; they were kind of afraid of not having any influence in that area. So it's you know it's also called the Great Game which was influence in that part of Asia, sort of between Britain, which was the main kind of colonial power, and the Russians, who were kind of like, you know, uh, trying to extend their influence from the north. Famously brought to life in the Sean Connery, Michael Caine film, The Man Who Would Be King. That's right. That based on a story by Kipling, I think. By Kipling, yeah. Well, that's largely in Afghanistan, is it? It is, but it, it was... It's all part of the same... Yeah, it was, it was that border, yeah. They were kind of like fairly porous. Where geopolitics was like a game, I guess. Anyway. And so... That was being played out particularly in that part of the world. And so I think Britain was worried about losing influence. And so they thought at that time if they could separate and support separate Muslim homelands in that area, that they could retain some sort of influence in that area. Mm -hmm. So they created two countries, Pakistan and India. There was West Pakistan and East Pakistan. Mm. East Pakistan then latterly, at the beginning of the 70s, had its own war of independence and became Bangladesh. But the irony has always been that there have always been more Muslims in India than there ever could be in Pakistan or Bangladesh. So I think India has the second largest Muslim population in the world 
after Indonesia. Mm. So there are more Muslims in India than there are across the Arabian Gulf, just in terms of numbers. But at the risk of sounding naive, like, is there a scenario where there was no partition and what was then the Raj just became a big country that included Pakistan, Bangladesh and India? Yeah, I think probably up until the early part of the last century, that was the case. So they were all part of one party, which was a kind of, what they had in common was to, you know, get the British out and to self-rule. But I think that idea of a separate homeland started to be, um, the idea was kind of implemented, you know, and it always probably been around, but that's where it became a serious thing. So Muhammad Ali Jinnah, who became the head of the Muslim League, mm. which were initially, you know, connected to the Congress Party of India, which was Nehru and Gandhi himself. Uh, Gandhi didn't want any kind of um, separation of state. He kind of went, we're one people. We've all got this in common. We've got language and food and blah, blah, blah. And it should be an egalitarian country. And I think, I mean, despite subsequent governments, I think that the constitution of India is still secular, I think, by constitution. So um, that's what Gandhi wanted. But um, Is that dream still alive in any form, the idea of a state that unifies Pakistan, Bangladesh and India? You don't uh, hear about no, that very much. I don't think there is. I don't think there is. I think there's now almost too much history that's happened for that to to walk back. But certainly there is maybe a quieter voice now than it has been in the past, but uh, an idea of a secular India, I think, is still quite a strong idea, although that has been eroded by various kind of like, you know, uh, right-wing sort of parties and views and government since. But, um, but yeah, I thought that was one of the strengths of India was that there was no national religion. Mm. And, and in fact, the symbol on the India-Pakistan border is a combination of all the other religious symbols, which makes a statement in and of itself. So at that time, you know, Hindus and Sikhs, non-Muslims, I suppose, who found themselves in those areas of East and West Pakistan had to move to what then became India, and Muslims went in the opposite direction. So if you were, quote-unquote, on the wrong side of the border yeah. to be part of the majority right. religious affiliation... You, you were not forced to, or you were? You were forced to move, or you just thought, I'd better prudentially move, otherwise it's not going to be good? You weren't uh, forced legally, but uh, there were What were there pressure. sort of rampaging people say? Yeah. There was sort of some sense of a very heightened atmosphere of incipient violence. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, the, the two sort of wagon trails uh, going in opposite directions from India to Pakistan were sometimes only yards apart. And so the violence erupted then, trains that were going from one direction to the other. People were massacred on the trains. I mean, it was kind of, it was a million people to a lot of people. There's an extraordinary bit in your India documentary series. When did that go out, by the way? 2007 or eight. Yeah. Yeah. In the second episode, where you go back to find your um, sort of old homestead, or mm. rather your father's, um, which is now in Pakistan, and you, you arrive at the temple at Amritsar, which is a, mm. a Sikh temple, and you meet a man who tells you. Do you remember? I do, An yeah. amazing story. Yeah, it was horrific, yeah. It was, it's one of the only occasions, I think, I've interviewed somebody and in a, inadvertently discovered my hands over my mouth. I didn't realize it until, my, until I started to speak. But he was, yeah, he was a, a Sikh kid 
in a village in what was Pakistan. And his father had been head man of this village. And they were aware that there was a baying bloodlust mob that was surrounding the village that they said they're, they're just going to kill us. They're going to kill all of us. So they made the decision that they would fight to the death but uh, to stop the women from falling into their hands. Being converted to Islam. Yeah, or worse. Um, it was that they would kill their own uh, women. And they had this discussion, and it was the head man's daughter, the guy I was interviewing, his sister, who proffered her head first, which was duly removed. I mean, it was just, I, I'd never heard anything like that, certainly not firsthand. And I kind of said, what happened then? And he said, well, they, when they saw that, they kind of backed off. In fact, the mob backed off. They kind of went, okay, this isn't going to end well for us. And so they backed off at that point. You know, I don't know. I've never been in a situation where I can't see any way out. And I don't know what happens to your head at that point. So, you know, whether that was a pragmatic move, whether it was a practical move, whether it was what it, what it was, was a story about sacrifice at its most extreme level. And so, yeah, there were many instances of that kind of horrific, almost ritualistic uh, approach to death. That you, I, think, I think you find that the more east you go, actually. I think there's a very Western view of, you know, killing and death and all that sort of stuff, which, which is not as ritualistic. And so I think incrementally, as you go further east, we can read about things or hear about things that we think is is kind of savage and brutal, which it is, but it's within a different cultural kind of uh, context, it makes sense to them. You know, martyrdom, for instance, is not something that, you know, is a concept in the West that we kind of have grown up Not with. anymore, although it's foundational to the Church of England, really, but it all happened in the late 16th century with people being burned by Mary the First and Fox's Book of Martyrs mm. was a big part of. They'd say, this is the part where I quote Nietzsche, who said, well, this isn't very apposite, but he said, a good war will make any cause sacred. And the idea that once blood is spilt, any belief system becomes almost sort of consecrated by that, by that example and that sort of sense of the stakes being raised. So, do you know, that reminds me of a quote by Chaplin in a film called Monsieur Verdu. It was one of his kind of talkies, so it was after the great dictator. And he played a serial killer in Paris. Chaplin? Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. It's kind of, it's a really interesting film. And so he basically murders uh, widows for their money, befriends them and then kills them and takes the money. And uh, sorry if it's a spoiler to anyone, but any, it, he gets caught. And in the end, he says, look, I did this to support my family. Because you know, a priest or something says to him, you've got a wife and kids. And weren't you thinking about them? And he said, that's exactly why I've done this. I've done this purposefully. You know, these were widows. They were approaching the end of their lives. They had no other family. I was very careful. And so these three or four women, I killed them for the money so I could support my family and kids. And he says at one point, you know, in war, hundreds of thousands, if not millions, are killed, mm. you know. And Chaplin's line is, he said, numbers sanctify. You know, which was that, yeah, mm. somebody who kills three or four people is a monster, which obviously they are. Um, but once you get into huge numbers, then it's sanctified in some mm. way. It's a cause, you know. 
So your your father was one of those displaced, and he went to uh, Delhi or New Delhi. He went to Delhi uh, or New Delhi. But I is guess it the same thing. He, well, the new bit is just it's newer. It's more recent. <laughs> <laughs> They're all part of the same city. It's the same city. Yeah, yeah. Um, New Delhi, I think, became. It's not like York capital. and New York. It's very different. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I'm trying to think of other places now which have got new in front of it. New York, New Delhi. New Malden? New Malden. <laughs> is that near Malden? Oh, I shit. mean, it has to be, doesn't it? I've been it? to New Malden. Have I been to Malden? I don't... Most of the time it's in America, like New York, New Orleans. Yeah. Uh, but New Malden right. New Orleans is, is not southwest of London. It is, yeah. So that Sorry, can't be, that's not part of the new world, is it? New Malden. It's a strange concept. I mean, they, maybe they just built it over Malden. <laughs> it's part of the colonial project. Yeah. Maybe they were trying to tell the king, like, we've made huge inroads. You know, the, <laughs> yeah. we've, now, we've now established New Malden and then just pretended it was, like, in America. Um, so, basically, your dad, having been moved or, you know, moved himself to to Delhi, and then, the, in a sense, he'd already, his ancestral, his sort of centuries old, yeah. the continuity they had as a family... The lineage had been severed, and so now, having been a stranger in Delhi, he was then a stranger in in West London. I mean, they were refugees in in Delhi, yeah. so they lived in refugee encampments and stuff like that. But you're absolutely right; it's no surprise to me that most of the people who came to Britain or Canada or the US in the '60s and the '70s were part of that group that had been displaced, whether it was on the Bangladeshi side. Uh, or whether it was on the Punjabi side or Gujarat underneath, is that these were people who'd been displaced. So that was a much bigger displacement for them. Yeah. Was as you say, you know, they had you know centuries of kind of connection to that land. And you, your mum came over a bit later, a few years later, yeah. And then you grew up with this sort of foot in both worlds. And when I read about you going back and forth, you sort of would do your summer holidays. Back in India, right? To reconnect you to the mother Yeah, country. it would be, well, it'd be once every kind of five or six years. Oh, it wouldn't because, be that often. No, because the tickets were expensive. And so we, what we didn't have were hol regular holidays here. So uh, across the summer, my dad would be working. Uh, my mum then started work as well. And it would take my dad four or five years to save up the money for us all to be able to go. So my summers were really stuck in a room in in Hounslow above a laundrette. Really? Yeah, which was okay. I mean, you you know, you accept the reality that's given to you. Not even um, like I don't know, like caravanning or B and B. No, we never understood caravanning. It was kind of like I mean, there was a line on in the Kumars when we were interviewing someone once about somebody who you know was outdoorsy and uh, went camping, and we said, look, you know, we. Why do you live in a tent for three weeks? I mean, we moved here to get away from that kind of lifestyle. <laughs> and this idea of putting a small box room on wheels and then driving around in that, what's that about? Um, no, we had, uh, I remember as a kid, we went to Wales for four days where it constantly rained. And we had an old estate car that wouldn't go up hills. So we had to all get out to lighten the load so it could go up. And then we'd be on top of this hill and my dad would be going, and this is Lake Bala. And we couldn't see a thing. It was just... And so my experience of Wales was just... It was mist and rain and, you know, land of intrigue because I hadn't seen anything. Uh, so we did that and we went to the Lake District once for three days. In hindsight, was it kind of fun or...? It was okay. It was kind of... Um, 
as I said, as a kid, you just accept the reality. Do you have siblings? Know, so I have a younger sister. Yeah. So it would be the four of you. It would be the four of us. And I think on, on four of us and somebody visiting from India. So that would be the treat for them. Right. So it was more for them in a way. It was more for them, yeah. Otherwise, we, my dad would just be at the Nestle factory doing overtime, which I didn't mind at all because, I mean, I've always been very comfortable with my own company. But that was a time to read and watch things. And, you know, it was all that kind of thing. What were you watching? Gosh, at that time, and the things that we watched. You to... were born in 63? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm seven years younger. Mm. But still, it wasn't radically with similar vintage. Yeah. You were probably watching a lot of Open University, were you? I mean, Open University. That was, was the only thing that was on. It was quite time. intriguing, Open University. I couldn't watch it for long, but it was that <laughs> weird thing where it was some bearded bloke with patches on his elbows. Yeah, and in huge front of flares a, in front of a blackboard. In front of a blackboard, yeah, talking about subatomic particles. For younger listeners, we should explain that there used to be just, uh, well, I, I remember only three channels. That's right. And um, there was no internet. No. Maybe I, mean, I don't have to say that, but I think it's worth reminding people. Yeah. So instead of 10 million YouTube channels, not to mention sundry streamers and cable, <laughs> you had three things that you could watch on TV. And yeah. a lot of the time, none of them were showing anything. So it would be a test card of a, of a girl playing noughts and crosses on a blackboard with a doll. Yeah. Remember that? Yeah. And you a, would put that on. It was, that, a, it was a clown. With a clown, you're yeah. right. Even that was better than nothing. Yeah, I mean, they even had, which I, I very vaguely remember, a potter's wheel. Right. It was really just a potter's wheel. Somebody sort of, you know, throwing... Just throwing pots. Like throwing pots. That was on a loop? Yeah. They never finished the pot. I mean, it was like, this was kind of like going to be the most extraordinary <laughs> pot. Of time. And you kind of then look at kind of, you know, Chinese pots from the Ming Dynasty and you go, they made thousands of them. Yeah. How long did it take them? Exactly. Um, do you, so is, you, do you remember the moon landing? Because uh, I, I, you would have been, what, six or seven years old? Yeah, I kind of do. Uh, in the, I was woken up to watch these grainy images. I had no idea of what was going on. But my mum woke me up because there was this moment in history. I remember looking at it and thinking, it's not as good as Star Trek. I mean, it's kind of, I mean you know, I, what's going on? It's, a, it's black and white. It's so boring. B, it's, yeah, it's quite dull. And, you know, and also, you know, subsequently you kind of go, well, that extraordinary quote you know the short step for man one small step for a man one giant leap for mankind is i mean that's an extraordinary quote it's a fantastic yeah. quote he had it written beforehand had he do you think he'd been practicing it? yeah he had it written down and then he bungled it if you listen he goes that's one small step for man one giant leap for mankind and he was supposed to say for a man oh was it yeah oh. of course that's the whole thing for a man being me taking a step one giant leap for mankind but if you say that's one small step for man you're contradicting yourself one giant leap for mankind yeah 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 I, I, now I've got just images of him looking at a mirror and going one giant walk no don't yeah, say well, he walk, don't I wonder walk, if he got help he probably got someone a ghostwriter. You, he, he would have known like I better say something cool when I step onto, uh, onto the moon as opposed to Wow. Here we cool. are. This is, feels weird. <laughs> this feels so weird. <laughs> Everything's slow. I would have liked to have been in that room where they were workshopping different lines. That would have been great, wouldn't it?
Hi, I'm Louis Theroux, and you're listening to the Louis Theroux Podcast. And now, back to my conversation with Sanjeev Baskar. But, How are you doing? How's but, your energy? Yes, yeah, it's, it's, it's good. Do you need anything? No, no, no. I mean, no, I still have some of my, my rider. Your here. rider? Yeah. I kind of like... So, it's your rider Just to cup. explain that, I kind of <laughs> emailed you to kind of say, no one's discussed my rider, and I'm going to list my rider now. Coffee. Coffee. And that was it. And so the first time I was on the Parkinson show, which was the big talk show to be on. Yeah. How many uh, times were you on it? Three. God, boast much. Times. Calm down. You asked me. Jeez. What are they going to do? Make something up? I suppose I could have done. How many times have I been on it? Once. Nunce. Ah, you see. I've imagined you on it. You were brilliant, by the way. Nunce. <laughs> you were brilliant. In my imagination, you were fantastic on it. So the first time I was on, they said to me, uh, what about your rider? And I said, my what? Yeah. And they said, rider. And I said, what, I, what is it? Well, I have no idea. I thought they were talking horses or bikes or something. And I said, I don't know what that is. And they said, what would you like in your room beforehand? And I said, well, what have other people asked for? Mm. And this is reportage here. This is just yeah. what I was told. So they said that uh, Paul McCartney had asked for organic fruit. Yeah. That made sense. They said Michael Crawford had asked for Warm sliced chicken breast. Uh, J Lo had asked for the whole room to be white. Stop it. White room, white couch, and Mariah Carey. Now you can't put that on a sold. rider. You can put anything you want on a rider. I mean, the whole Blue M and M's thing started from some rock band. That's right. Famously, sort of like well, rock bands used to increase their cachet by making outrageous. Right. Unfulfillable right. demands. So, yeah, you can do that sort of stuff, apparently. And Mariah Carey had asked for puppies and kittens to stroke. Come on. This is what I was told. May You're not, not making that up. No, this is what I was told. And at the end of it, she said, I said, You're kidding. And she went, No, no, that's what people have asked for. And she said, What would you like? And I said, Some coffee would be nice. And that's how that's... down to earth. <laughs> You are. I couldn't think of anything more <laughs> ludicrous. I mean, I could have said a jet ski or something like that. That would have been interesting. Um, is that legally actionable? Do you think Mariah Carey? Um, it may not be true. It I may mean, not be true. No. That's all we need to yeah, say. I mean, it, you know, that's what I was told, but it may not be true. I don't think it's libelous. It might be. It's an odd is thing. It, why is it? I don't understand how it would be libelous. If you said not... to torture, she wanted puppies and kittens to torture before she went on the show. I mean, that, that would be libelous. Yeah, because there's a. There's an inbuilt character thing there. And like, in the, stroking in the, them. Do you remember in the 70s, there used to be these rumors that went round where you said such and such a pop star demanded um, 20, not as a rider, just as a recreation, a number of baby chicks because he wanted to stamp on them. <laughs> do you remember that, that story? Kind of stuff. I don't Did remember you ever that hear specifically. That one? No. Do you remember the one about such and such a pop star collapsed on the way to a gig? And had his stomach pumped, and they found the semen yes, of I twenty different men. <laughs> I do remember that one, and I remember who it was said about. Which more I than one person? Yeah. Well, twenty. <laughs> <laughs> the semen, but there were two pop stars. One was R S, and one was M A. Yeah, the second one was the one that I <laughs> I re recall. I like the vision that it conjures of the doctors saying. Good God, this looks like semen. Have it tested to see how many different men it is. Yeah. Like, so they'd go to the trouble. But not even tested. It may be somebody with that instinctive thing that looks like semen. I'm saying it's 20. 20. 20. But I'd like confirmation. You want the... <laughs> Get it to, take it to the lab. It's the Jaws moment. Yeah. It's, how, how many men's semen do you think that is? 20. 25. 25. Going to need a bigger vial. Yeah. 
Um, well, there was one other one which was, oh, um, such and such a pop star would pass around a mug and have everyone spit in it. Did oh, you? yeah, I and do then, recall So this. that he could drink it. Yeah, I do recall that one. And that was on his rider. <laughs> I demand a mug with the semen of 20 men and another mug with the spit and sputum of 20 other men, but they can't be the same men. We've very much, we've lowered the tone. I wonder, one of the things that's striking about your story is, uh, well, not just that you came to fame relatively late, but that there was also this sort of previous life in which you worked, having gone to college and studied marketing. Business and marketing. Business and marketing. Yeah. Done a bit of drama, which you then sort of, that fell by the wayside. Mm. Not having done much drama at school or any, I think. None. You know, the A-levels that I did, pure and applied maths, physics and economics, were not the natural ones for me to do. And so that was about trying to please my parents, trying to sort of fit in, you know, with parents, society, what other people were doing. There was no one around me that kind of really was interested in films and music and creativity. And it was only when I met Nitin Sawney that I found a kindred spirit. Nitin Sornhi, the celebrated and much garlanded and brilliant uh, musician and composer. Mm. I mean, he's a phenomenon in terms of he's, you know, one of the few geniuses I've ever met. Mm. And uh, yeah, we kind of, I mean, we were, funny enough, I saw him last night for dinner and um, we were talking about it with that we would, we kind of both talked about the fact that there was nobody that we could see in the public eye that reflected our experience of being British and of Asian heritage, South yeah. Asian heritage. And so we said, why don't we do something? And why don't we mix comedy and music? And so that's been riven through everything I've done. So whether it was sketches on Goodness Gracious Me or Kumars or anything else that I've come up with, it's preconceptions that I'm playing with. And that was born out of that partnership with Nitin Sawney because it was, well, there are going to be preconceptions about two South Asian blokes on stage. How do we mess with that? So we would do sketches, but then he would suddenly play a flamenco piece. Mm. And then we'd I'd do some impressions and then we'd sing Volare in Italian. Yeah. And so in a way, it was a challenge to the audience to kind of go, you guess what's coming next. And so that really, if I hadn't met him, I don't think it would have remained this pipe dream. It all seemed so distant. If you no hadn't met Nitin, you think you might never have gone on I don't and fulfilled think so. your creative ambition? I don't think so. I don't think I would have had the confidence. I would have always had the interest and the passion, but uh, never have had the confidence. So A bit like your, well, whether it was confidence or circumstances, but you've spoken about your dad having creative ambitions, wanting to be a film director, and yeah. you never having the opportunity to do that. Yeah, you know, he knew what it felt like to close the lid shut on a passion. And so I think he didn't want that for his son. So I didn't know that he was interested and had pursued it to some degree until I was in my 40s. And so it's one of the things that I'm, of the many things that I'm grateful for in terms of the relationship with my dad was that his first 30 years were incredibly traumatic for him. And his next 30 years were just about working and providing. And so I'm really grateful that he had 30 years where he saw the fruits of that, mm. you know, and he was happy and you know, saw me do well and, you know. Was he very uh, proud of you? Yeah, I think he was, yeah, towards the, the end. He wasn't, you know, for the Demonstrative. first 30 years. Oh, really? <laughs> because really. one of the things was also, I heard you say, well, his sense of unrealized artistic ambitions 
maybe made him less tolerant, right, yeah. of your artistic bent, right? And I was thinking, well, it could just as easily be the other way around, where he thought, yeah. don't make the mistake I made, son. Pursue your dream. You know, don't get locked up in a preconception about you know, needing to be a professional. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think that's perfectly valid. I think, but also, you know, going back to what uh, a migrant mentality is, is that you kind of go, I don't fit in. I want my kids to fit in. I want to be able to see that my kids are an integral part of this society more than I can be. Mm. And that becomes paramount. And so that then is about safety. And so whether it's about those kind of jobs, which you think are essential to society, being a doctor or being a lawyer or something like that, an engineer or something that's vital and important, you think that will be the shorthand for your kid being settled and viable, financially viable, certainly. And then things will build from that. There's a st stability that comes from that. The problem is now in the modern world, there is no stability to any of those kind of jobs. And to me, the journey is everything. So, you know, everything else are stepping stones. You know, they're going to go on to something else in some shape, way or form. And so then it becomes about, do you control your narrative? Yeah. So for me, it was about getting confident enough to go, I, I'm going to start writing my story no matter what. And I think my dad at that point then also realized that I was writing a story that he had some familiarity with. So basically you had a bit of success at university, but not so much that you thought, this is it, this is what I'm doing. It didn't no, feel kind of as though you are... The scales fell from your eyes and you thought, I was born to do this and I can never look back. No, I can't. I mean, I loved it. And we, you know, this is what we were talking about last night, Nathan and I, that we would spend maybe a month coming up with material yeah. and then we'd do one show and that was it. And that was it. Yeah. And then we just wouldn't do anything else for another year. I mean, it was kind of, it really was our enjoyment and the reactions were great, but it's, you know, it wasn't a commercial environment. Where were you at university? It was it was then uh, Hatfield Polytechnic, University of Hertfordshire now. Right. Um, yeah. But if you had been at the, um, you know, the cliche is that, you know, at Oxford or is it Cambridge, the Cambridge Footlights, yeah. and then you meet your Emma Thompson and your Stephen Fry, and mm. then you're part of this little talented group that goes on and makes movies. But I suppose it was a little different. The agents from London weren't trekking. They weren't trekking up down to sort of talent spot. The next Peter's friends, not in Hatfield, and uh, but also the Footlights. Cambridge had a history, so you could go back and you you could look at you know yeah. Peter Cook and you could look at John Cleese and people like that at that time. And you so you know there was a history to that, so there was a well worn path. But yeah. um, no, we were just two people who were studying different things who had a friendship who did this stuff. And watching TV growing up and yeah. then later, you know, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that, surprise, surprise, some of the content was, uh, well, slightly racist, right? That actually on shows like it Ain't Half Hot Mum. Yeah. Do you remember that one? I do, yeah. It's interesting you bring that one up because I've always defended it. We used to watch it in our house. And, you know, I even hesitated when I used the word racist because... That's a strong term. It is. They didn't yeah. set out to say, like, let's make a program that's really racist. Notwithstanding that, it had a guy who was, I guess, browned up. An actor was playing... Mm. Michael Bates. Michael Bates yeah. played the character... Uh, Ranji Ram. You got, you got it right. Yeah. It's kind of, I've, I've always defended that Go on. program, actually, because Talk I think... about that. I mean, I get the, you know, the browning up thing. And, you know, and I understand you wouldn't do that now. But, you see, my kind of um, litmus test for shows that were racist on TV were how it impacted on me. And the 
impact on me was uh, illustrated by what names I got called in the playground the next day. So shows that were big here, like Till Death Us Do Part, which in America, I think, was it All in the Family? Oh, All in the Family. Archie Bunker? Yeah, you're right. In America, it was All in the Family and it was Archie Bunker. Yeah. And so after those shows, you know... Which was lauded as a kind of, at the time, oh, we're making fun of the bigoted attitudes of the suburban man. That's right. right. And he was sort of racist, but it was framed as we're laughing at how small-minded he is and he had a more progressive son, right? Right. And in fact, everyone around him was more progressive. Yeah. His wife was. And, but the devil had the best lines. Yeah. And so those are the shows the next day that I got called names really? on the way to school or in the playground. I remember saying to someone once about the racism stuff I got at school and they said, well, kids can be cruel. And I said, I'm not talking about the kids. I'm talking about the teachers. And so, really? yeah, I got I got called names and all the rest of it from adults. I don't forget about kids. Kids you could deal with. But... It ain't our hot mum, which to explain the premise of the show. Thank you. Was yes. a if uh, nothing else comes of this episode, if it gives a second life, <laughs> I shouldn't. I just, okay, the irony is over, overreaching. Overreaching. Um, it was uh, kind of funny, wasn't it? it? Was I want to say it was written by Seals and Croft, but they were a uh, Perry and Croft. <laughs> Seals and Croft were a R and B duo. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, maybe. They moon moonlit. <laughs> they moonlighted yeah. writing sitcoms in the 70s. Perry and Croft, who yeah. also did Are You Being Served and a few others. And Dad's Army. And Dad's uh, Army. And so all of their stuff really was about Britain and class. Yeah. And so was uh, It Ain't Our Fault, Mum. And, so- and they had actually, they had, Perry and Croft had also been in the theatrical troupe on the Eastern Front. Do I mean the Eastern Front on the Asian Front? In the yeah. Second World War, yeah, they had real experience. And so yeah, that it was the sitcom was based on that. Yeah. The idea of the, it was the last stages of the Second World War. And there's these people basically avoiding active duty by being by putting on shows for the troops, right? Yeah. Which is a kind of a brilliant premise. It, it's, a, it's a great premise. But, uh, you know, their immediate superior uh, is a sergeant major who absolutely believes in war and fighting. And Played by Windsor Davis. Windsor Davis. Which is lovely boys, lovely boys. He's yes, Welsh. Right. Welsh. But it was about class because the dimmest people were the people who were right at the top, yeah. were the kind of colonel and the major who were overall in charge and they had no idea of what was going on. And the smartest person in the show was Ranji Ram. Yeah. So, you know, the day after that was shown, I never got called any racist names. Really? Because the power lay with you know, the South Asian characters, even though one was browned up, mm. but he spoke fluent Urdu. Did he? Yeah. You know, we watched it as a family and there was no offence taken by my parents because they kind of understood the um, archetype. Really? They understood that type of wily sort of Indian character who is kind of really controlling everything. He's, he's not in charge, but he is. And they wouldn't have minded too much that um, he was played by a white character. No, because uh, I think because I think the performance was great. And so it's the same as Peter Sellers. I mean, one of the films that I thought I would die laughing at when I was 11 was The Party. And yeah. in it, Peter Sellers plays an Indian actor, so he's browned up, uh, who gets invited by mistake to a kind of big Hollywood party. Yes. And it's mostly mime, actually, but... Uh, I was 11. Directed by Blake story. Edwards. Blake Edwards, yeah. Playing Harundu V. Bakshi. Yeah. You knew it. And, um, it's, very, it's quite funny, isn't it? Or should I say that? Well, no, I think, see, I think both of those are great 
comedy performances. And you got to understand that I think, you know, at that time, across the 60s and the 70s, there was no sort of uh, South Asian representation on TV. So even someone browning up for us was kind of a step closer to seeing ourselves reflected. And the thing with, um, you know, Michael Bates in It Ain't Our Vault Mum or Peter Sellers in the two films where he played an Indian character was that we, we thought with both of those that the target wasn't us, wasn't kind of Indians. We didn't think that was the target. You know, he played a character who was ridiculous and silly, and but we never felt it was personal. Whereas there is a very famous, um, very short-lived sitcom in Britain uh, called Curry and Chips uh, with Spike Milligan dressed up. Now, Spike Milligan could also speak the language. Really? Um, because he was, uh, uh, again, the amount of time he spent in India. But the characterization was that the, his accent was the joke. Really? Whereas with Peter Sellers, the accent wasn't the joke. And similarly with Michael Bates, the accent wasn't the joke. You had him there and you had two real Indian actors with uh, genuine accents. And um, those were the heroes of the story. So no one was going to mock us, you know, me as a kid, for being the hero in a story. But if you were the target of the story, then, of course, you know, then it was fair game. And there, I think there's a difference. There always has been a difference between punching up and punching down. Did you ever have the experience, you know, I was reminded of, uh, of Dave Chappelle and him. He did a lot of racially charged humor on his Comedy Central show. And then he ended up walking away from the show because he felt things he was saying from a place of lived experience and, I guess, affection and familiarity about you know the black community and the black experience in America were being received slightly differently and he didn't like the way I guess a white guy he's quoted as saying like there was a white person laughing in a way he felt uncomfortable with and I'm wondering whether there there were jokes on goodness gracious me that you know quite rightly a white comedian or actor wouldn't have uh wouldn't have been comfortable them doing but did it ever feel to you like it was being received if people were sort of doing the skit and they weren't didn't have Asian heritage, let's say. Mm. Was it ever a time when you felt like, oh, actually, I feel like this is in danger of getting out of control? Does that make sense? Yeah, it, no, it never felt like that. And I think it was primarily because uh, I never felt that we were the targets. Uh, we were uh, involved. And so, you know, they, if they're repeating stuff... It would have felt friendly. Yeah, and also, you know, language-wise, we were fairly clean. Mm-hmm. You know, so it wasn't that any of that language was going to be used against anyone that could be, you know, quoted back to us. Some of the catchphrases were, what was it, chuddies? Well, eat my chuddies? Kiss my, kiss my chuddies. Kiss yeah. my chuddies. Yeah. Chuddies are uh, underpants. So I'm both in a pub saying, a white guy saying, kiss my chuddies, yeah. in an accent, would be okay. Yeah. Um, in fact, the first time I realised that the show had crossed over, were I was walking along Upper Street in Islington, in North London, and it was quite a hot day, and I heard someone say, Oi! in a slightly kind of like boisey, aggressive way. Mm. And I thought, outside a pub, and I thought, I'll just keep walking. And then he went, oi, goodness gracious me, bloke. And so I turned around and saw him with two kind of um, skinheads who were sitting with him. So I walked back and he said, uh, chuddies. I said, yeah, he said, it's underpants, isn't it? And I said, yes, it is. And he went, I told you, I told you, (laughs) to these guys. And I thought, wow, the show's crossed over. 
it's crossed over to a mainstream mm. audience because I wouldn't have thought they would have been the people who'd get it or watch it. So, um, no, it didn't. It didn't. It's kind of, um, you know, most people that I've met, I've been lucky enough to meet, bump into, say something, they're generally quite nice. And so, and so, therefore, you know, if they're repeating something, even with a hint of an accent, I'm not thinking, oh, you're mocking me or you're mocking South Asians or you're mocking immigrants. I kind of go, well, that's a quote from a show I've done, so that's fine. When, um, when you had Ronnie Corbett on the Kumars, yeah, I thought he was quite brilliant. He was great, yeah. And um, you asked him if he'd do an Indian accent, right? Do you remember that? Gosh, I don't remember that, but yeah, very yeah. lucky we did, yeah. Well, because he'd probably done it as part of the two Ronnie's sketches yeah. at some point. And I thought, this is interesting. I wonder what the correct form is mm-hmm. like for him. And he said, oh, uh, I, I, he said, you're, you're, you're very kind, but I, I'd feel self-conscious doing it in front of such experts. Mm-hmm. And so he, he, he declined. Yeah. We asked that of a couple of people, actually. Minnie Driver, we asked her to do an Indian really? accent. And did she do one? She had a go and she said, God, I, I sound like I'm from Glamorgan in Wales. Yeah. So that was great. She was game. Uh, Tom Jones, we said, you sound, you know, the Welsh accent is very similar to the Indian accent. You sound just like, you know, Uncle Davinda who who runs a shop. Could you say, oi, only two school kids at a time? <laughs> and did he do and it? He did, yeah. And we said, yeah, that sounded just like Uncle Davinda. So we've had fun with it. I mean, it's yeah, like, you know, uh, um, that's lovely that you can dispel. So I wondered whether, well, does it get awkward if he does the if he does a, an accent? But actually, you would have been very understanding that he's in a safe space and it's coming from a place of affection and mutuality. Yeah, I, mean, I just never thought, you know, when when he had done the the, the accent on two Ronnie sketches, I never thought, oh, this is him being nasty about you know the Asian community or anything like that. You know, and as I said, you know, it's it's different times. It's kind of like at that time that was acceptable. Yeah. Now it isn't. Doesn't mean that that is now unacceptable. It's it was. It's a thing that now it's it's it strikes me so weird that, you know, in so many discussions where, you know, non-binary mm. becomes a topic that arguments are so binary. Mm. I mean, it's you know, it's it's either yeah, this or that. It's it's a really so. And the thing that the casualty is context. You go, there's, there's no context. People don't have time for context. No. You know, they'll hear a word or a phrase or an opinion and they'll go, well, that's it. Then. No, 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 I don't need to hear anymore. While we're in sort of culture wars territory, <laughs> I mean, I'm not inviting you to get yourself into hot water. I think I once heard that you were friendly with Lawrence Fox. Is that? I was, yeah. I mean, you, I did an episode of Lewis that yeah. he was a regular in and uh, I'd worked with his dad. James Fox, he was absolutely lovely. I did a yeah. film uh, that he was in. So I kind of, you know, got on with, you know, the Foxes. Mm. So I was was in touch with him. I mean, I, yeah, I'll let you ask the question. Well, I suppose if you felt, do you feel like you can shed any light on what's going on with him? No, not really. I mean, because I, you know, I didn't know him very well. I always had, uh, you know, perfectly, he was you know, perfectly nice to me and civil and friendly. And so a lot of his views now, I don't really understand where they've come from. And, you know, I don't agree with many of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I'd like to believe, and this may be just me being optimistic, that I, that he's not fundamentally a racist person. Mm-hmm. But I think that he got a lot of love from the right wing of society. Mm-hmm. And that's where he felt loved and accepted and being loved and accepted is fundamental to us being able to kind of get up and do another day 
But, you know, there is a kind of an entrenchment of views that he has that I don't fully understand. So I think he's coming from a place of uh, the anti-racists are the real racists, right? Yeah. And that um, his evidence base seems to be, to my mind, quite narrow. So he's characterizing an area of progressive ideology as all-encompassing and completely suffocating and saying that we're sort of under the jackboot of this ultra-woke agenda. And so he recently, I think he's in litigation at the moment, people accused him of being racist and he called them in turn paedophiles and now they're in court. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, again, it's this libertarian view of kind of, you know, free speech. And the, when I kind of read about, you know, libertarians or, or a particular viewpoint, particularly when it comes to free speech, it tends to be very, very personal. It tends to be, I should be allowed to say mm. whatever I want. And if you then you know, call someone, and this is, I guess, what his court case is about, is that, you know, he's, he's saying, well, you know, you, you call me racist and that is a slur. And you, whereas if I call you a paedophile, then that's obviously a joke because you're not really. And you kind of go, well, wait a minute, where's, where's the free speech libertarianism then? Where does, where does that fall? You know, either, yes, everyone can say what, what they want, but it's not that. It's generally, you know, I want to be able to say what I want and not get into trouble for it. And that's the thing that it doesn't it doesn't work for me. Hi, me again, Louis Theroux. Just to remind you, you're listening to the Louis Theroux podcast. And now, back to my conversation with Sanjeev Bhaskar. Okay, just, I know time's dribbling on. Not dribbling, gushing. <laughs> Coursing. Oh, man. I want to circle back. We're going to have a big yeah. finale in a minute. But while we're, we're just ticking things off, yeah. you were in a Woody Allen film. I was, yeah, I was. It was called Scoop. It was shot in London. Did you have lines? I did have lines. I had. I, I was in two and a half scenes, which got two of which got cut. <laughs> so I, I'm now in the film, just saying, "Well, we're here to play poker, so let's play." That's it. But I had many more lines. Than I had a scene with. I had a couple of scenes with Hugh Jackman, who, you know, the value of that job was that I became friends with Hugh, and so I remained friends with Hugh. Right. So that was lovely. You weren't yeah. friendly with Woody. No, I was kind of, I mean, I was, I mean, Woody Allen's comedy writing was a huge influence. So particularly those films in the 70s and early 80s, there's a kind of banner period, which I think yeah. the films are extraordinary. But no, I just met him and uh, that was it. There's, there's two people Did I've met. Did he give you much direction? Very little, actually. Um, he would... Yeah, Chief, I love what you're doing with the part. <laughs> I can't do it. I can't it's, do it. It's, yeah, but you, people would instantly know who you're doing. Oh That's the thing, God. isn't it? It's kind of, it's not... It's not my to interiors be go bananas. It's... Um, <laughs> Uh, that's a Simpsons gag. Um, it's uh, a very good one. So you were in it, and then, and then he didn't give you much direction. No, he doesn't. He means what the, year was it? Oh gosh, well, this would have been. It was post Kamal, so uh, not post Kamal, but during Kamal. So two thousand four. Had he seen Kumars? No, Hugh had, and so that was the thing that really that was, threw me. 
Um, but when I got to the set, I saw Hugh Jackman, who's wonderful, who's just a lovely guy and so handsome. And, and uh, he looked at me and he said, Sanjeev. And I said, whoa, how do you know? And he said, Kumas, right? He said, I used to watch you in Australia. And I was kind of like, oh, my God. And Jeez, so, that's um, a nice feeling. So He seems like a nice man. Really lovely, yeah. So, yeah, you know, it was it was valuable for that. You know, this that whole thing about worth and value is something that I've kind of learned as the career has kind of dribbled on <laughs> since you've introduced the word now, it seems apt. Um, which is that, it, I mean, it's a very lucky dribble, but um, is, is that whole thing about, you know, meeting people and having experiences is where the real value of life is. And, you know, so much of society tells you ascribes a number to it whether it's how much you earn whether you, what your house is worth league tables so it's that idea of seeing worth and value beyond numbers that kind of really draws me to either projects or experiences or whatever it's kind of it's that because that's what sustains me that's what's interesting to me Woody Allen calls you tomorrow and says I'd like you to play the lead in my new movie yeah I'd say kind of see a script you read the script, you, you think it's a return to form. It's visionary and brilliant. This is about, you know, cancelled Woody Allen, isn't it? Is it? <laughs> Sneaky bastard. Um, it's a tricky one. It's a really tricky one. I mean, it's because, you know, it, to hold a viewpoint on this, it kind of kills you either way. Feel free to dodge. I think you're mid-dodge. I am mid-dodge. I am mid-dodge. I'm mid-dodge because I don't really know. I don't really know. And that's that's the difficulty. It's uh, lucky that your scenes were cut in a way because <laughs> at least you weren't really faced with the dilemma of, like, well, a lot of people, Timothy Chalamet, yeah. you know, said he wished he'd never fil- done a film with Woody Allen. You know, these other actors. Yeah. But you don't, you were never, I, don't, I suspect your phone wasn't ringing off the hook with people saying, like, do you stand by your crucial role in Scoop or not. (laughs) I wish I'd never worked with Woody Allen. I'm disgusted and I'll be returning my fee. No, you kind of, because you, you know, you know what you know at the time. And so... But we're talking about now. You feel free to dodge. Yeah, but the... Would you? Would you? Would you? I'm still going to dodge, I think. Yeah, dodge away. I am going to dodge because, you know, with someone like Harvey Weinstein... Did you do a Harvey film? No, I had a deal with Miramax. So I did meet him. No, you didn't. I did, yeah. What kind of deal? It was a writing deal. I had a three-picture deal. Stop with it. To write. That's yeah. a scoop. No pun intended. Uh, well, very There's intended. our clickbait. Um, yeah, I met him Go on. once or twice. Uh, he was. Um, he, he wasn't the most pleasant person to me, I have no. to say. Woody Allen was not unpleasant to me, but he was very in his kind of directing mode. And so there was very little chit chat and stuff yeah. like that. But Harvey, yeah, you got your deal. Yeah, he'd seen he'd seen some of the sketches from Goodness Gracious Me, and the ones that he liked happened to be some of the ones that I'd written. And so, on the basis of that, he said, "You know, give this guy a three picture deal." Yeah. And so I like the cut of this guy's jib. I'm more, I don't know what he sounds like, but I'm more comfortable with yeah that, that kind of voice. I think let's just say that is. He's phenomenal. Yeah. I got a, you're hilarious. You're hilarious. hilarious. And then you shut, 
this is awful. This is risible. This, this guy can't write words shit. for shit. It, it's kind of he's like a one <laughs> one man Statler of Waldorf. <laughs> this sketch is wonderful. This made me laugh. Well, some of it made me laugh. Well, the first line was funny. It's terrible. Funny in a strange kind of way. The rest of it was awful. In fact, the title is awful. This is shit. This piece of shit. I love Get it. out of my You're office. Fired. Um, so, how much did you deliver on the deal? I I didn't. It was it was a very kind of. Um, it was a very instructive and illustrative experience. It sounds like of... Barton Fink in my head. That's where I was going <laughs> yeah, with it, right. where they flew you out. Three, give this guy a three-picture deal. I walked in and they said, oh, this is Sanjeev. He's got the, you're hilarious. Really? Uh, write me some uh, funny stuff. And then that was it. And then did you get, you handed nothing in? They sent me a script and said about rewriting it. And I kind of uh... gave my ideas for that. And there was a discussion whereby... Someone actually said, yeah, the problem with this is there's just too many Indian characters in it. And I said, what? Too many Indian characters? They went, yeah. And I said, I, why have you brought, I don't know why I've got a deal. It's kind of like. So you kind of dodged two bullets. Mm. Next you'll be saying you nearly got a, a pilot away with Russell One Brand. bullet. It's the magic bullet theory. <laughs> it's, the it's, the same bullet. it's the same bullet. Yeah. It skipped around Woody Allen. It went past Harvey Weinstein. Yeah. And then came out. Came through Russell Brand's legs. Yeah, that's right. Um, oh, my God. <laughs> really hot, hot. But, you know, I appreciate you going down the road. You still haven't answered the Woody Allen question. I have. It, I have answered it. I'm agnostic. I don't know. I genuinely... You would genuinely take the role. You, what you said was if the script was right, you would take, you would take the part. I partner. mean, you know, but then, then you'd make that decision then, you know. I think we've dribbled brilliantly. I mean, good luck with the edit. That's all I can what say. What Millie does. Thank you so much for coming in, Sanjeev. No, thank you. It's been um, wonderful. And thank you for being generous with your time. I mean, I've got more, but let's stop there. Come on, stop it. Stop it. And scene. <laughs> thank you so much. Okay, so there you are. I hope you enjoyed that. A little trip down memory lane for you boomers out there. The world of three TV channels, test cards, cinema adverts for restaurants around the corner, and and then for the younger folk, perhaps an education on uh, what a deprived upbringing we older folk had. We suffered so that you could enjoy a million channels on YouTube. Um Check out those sketches, many of which are on iPlayer and easily findable there and on YouTube. You can easily find uh, the Kumars at number 42 as well. I think it's on BritBox. And they get guests of absolutely the highest caliber. Phil Collins, you don't see him on much, do you? And there he is looking tanned and relaxed and enjoying um, the high quality bands. Cliff Richard, Elvis Costello, David Hasselhoff. It would be quicker to tell you the people who haven't been on it like me and the queen um what else to say like basically what a pleasure to to sort of just enjoy chatting and you know and, and laughing about our comparable in some ways experiences of life in the public eye and out of it and and the sense that he's a warm person a person who's likes to see the good in people who's refreshingly can i say that indulgent of different times having different mores like his the takeaway from me was that it 
Ain't Half Hot Mum, which I think still isn't shown on TV because of the browning up. That for him, that was at the time a kind of form of representation, and felt that it was not aimed at Sanjeev and his family. So thank you to Sanjeev for coming on and giving so much of his time. If I can clarify and amplify a couple of things, if you've got time, if you need to go, go. there's nothing essential. We've covered most of the main points, but if you're still here, the Nietzsche quote, it's also translated as, it is the good war that hallows any cause. So in, in a sense, it's not that you have to fight for a good cause, it's that in the act of fighting, you make the cause good, in inverted commas. Like if you went to war for a podcast, if I declared war on a rival podcast and my producer died, suddenly like our podcast would have this sort of renewed sense of nobility and reverence because we'd be part of a tradition that was consecrated by the loss of our producer. Does that make sense? If we were going to declare war on a podcast, a rival podcast, it's interesting to wonder which one it might be. You'd probably choose the one you thought you could defeat most easily. Rory Stewart, he's t- is he tough? He, he walked across Iraq, didn't he, or something? He's pretty wiry. And then he'd have backup because Campbell would be there, and he's he's quite big, and he runs marathons. You'd want to go for one of those comedy ones, off-menu, something like that. James A. Castor. He's a nice guy, but there's different rules in war. Regarding the semen in stomach rumor, um, it's worth saying it's been attached over the years to... It says here hundreds of celebrities. I don't. That seems like an exaggeration, but definitely more than two. Uh, it's entirely untrue. I mentioned RS and MA. If you want to know who those people are, <laughs> email me and I won't tell you. On Lawrence Fox, since recording took place, he lost his libel battle with the two Twitter users he called paedophiles. He'd been sued by Simon Blake, a former Stonewall trustee, and Crystal, a drag artist, over a dispute on Twitter in October 2020. Um, They'd called him racist, and they were not found guilty of libel for that. I mean, the the details are quite colourful if you want to dig into them in your own time. And finally, we spoke about Woody Allen and Russell Brand. Both have repeatedly denied the allegations made against them. Credits. Produced by Millie Chu. The assistant producer was Marne Al-Yazari. The production manager was Francesca Bassett. And the executive producer was Aaron Fellows. The music in the series was by Miguel de Oliveira. This is a Mindhouse production for Spotify. Spotify.